The What Would It Take podcast is co-produced by Anabaptist World and me, Ben Tapper. The views expressed here are my own and do not necessarily represent the official positions of Anabaptist World. To learn more, visit anabaptistworld.org. What is good, everyone? Welcome back to the What Would It Take podcast. I uh, am here this week with a super special guest. This might be one of the first times I've had a guest on this podcast, and so I'm excited for that reason, but also excited at the person that's here. I'm joined by my dear friend uh, and adopted family member, uh, Kibler Hidalgo. Kibler, welcome today. It's great to have you here. Thank you so much, Ben. It's a pleasure. Uh, Kibler is a, I'm going to, I wrote this down, so I want to make sure I get it correctly at your, your intro. All right. <clears throat> Kibler is, uh, an urban Apache, German Jew, queer, femme, two-spirit woman, a mother, auntie, cousin, niece, uh, and wife. Did, I don't know if you have that out there as well. But yeah, it's true, but you know, does it get yeah. broadcast? I don't know. Yeah. Okay. Um, as well as a social scientist by trade um, and someone that I consider a leader, an elder, and a healer in the community. Um, and we're here to talk about and to answer the question what would it take to keep our Native family safe? Um, so, once again, welcome, Kibler. Is there anything you want to add to, to your introduction so folks know more about who you are? Multi hyphenated. You know, um, a lot of roles, definitely a matriarchy, um, not an elder quite yet, but definitely in my training, um, I would say an entrepreneur, consultant, uh, partner, of course, a bit, I have a business partner and a partner that I love um, that I'm here with. And I am in the occupied territory of the Pachanga Band of the Laos Indians. Uh, now called Southern California or the Inland Inland Empire, mm. and I am a displaced uh, Mascalero Apache. Excellent, thank you. So definitely qualified to have the discussion that we're going to have today. Um, and I, I'll, I'll let folks know that that Keebler and I have known each other for well over 10 years. I don't know the exact <laughs> number of years, but it's been a minute. Uh, and so we knew each other when. So so we've got some history. And so the vibe of this discussion will, will probably be a little different than the normal vibe of the podcast in all the best ways. Um, but starting out, when we talk about or when people talk about uh, indigenous folks, the native population, you know, I know I used to have a very narrow understanding of who I was talking about or the type of people I was imagining. Can you just kind of paint a broad stroke picture of the diversity of the indigenous native community, especially as it relates to what we call Turtle Island? Absolutely. So just like in that broad stroke of Turtle Island, what we mean is the U.S., right? Or what is now called uh, the U.S. So in that empire, well, before we even get there, let's just say that the continent of America, right, which encompasses what's now called Canada, what's now called Mexico, we're indigenous through and through, as well as in South America, as well as in the continent of Africa. There are indigenous people all over the world. But this discussion, we're going to take a kind of um, more... Um, detailed approach at folks just here on Turtle Island because that's that's where my my people are from. Yeah. So 
just on Turtle Island, um, now the U.S. Empire, we have over 574 federally recognized tribes. Um, And I can't speak to all of them. And we talked about that a little bit earlier as somebody um, who's a descendant of the Apache Nation. We have eight recognized tribes. So just just Apache folks alone. And that doesn't uh, even comprehend the folks that are no longer recognized under the Indian Act, which is our federal uh, level of how we identify. Um, And and we talked a little bit about, you know, some members of my family are registered under the Indian Act and some of us aren't. So I'm third generation off the reservation and I am an unregistered urban Indian, meaning that my dad stopped his um, registry during Nixon or said he no longer wanted to be identified by the federal government as Native American because he didn't want to receive benefits. Mm. Not that they're much. But at that time, there was a big push by the government to say, hey, you don't need the help, you know, and what that really was doing was continuing on the genocide, which we'll get deeper into, uh, but that eradication of uh, Native populations. So out of that 575, there's hundreds more who are still fighting to be federally recognized or to get their tribal status back or nation status back. Wow. And, you know, we've, you and I have a, a weekly standing call. And so we've connected almost every week for at least the last 12 to 18 months. And I did not know that there were eight different Apache tribes. Uh, so even I'm learning something new today, which is why I wanted to have you on here. That's wild. It um, is. And so as we, one of the things I've learned from you about indigenous culture and native culture has been um, the importance of community and the the traditions and the the way that in, indigenous folks still are able to hold on to and retain the stories about who they are and why they are. Um, some, a conversation you and I have had frequently is you talking to me about the Apache uh, folks being warriors and other other tribes, other clans being makers of pottery, uh, jewelry, hunters. So can you just talk about some of those, I'll call them cultural distinctions, even amongst uh, tribes? Absolutely. So I think you and I, we've talked a lot about what it means to be like a Southwest native. You know, my Apache people are in Southern New Mexico, but there are Apache people in Arizona. There are Apache people in Southern Colorado, Texas, uh, the Northern belt of Mexico, Chihuahua, Sonora. Um, we, we are spread across uh, quite a distance of land. Um, but all of us seem to have that we were warriors, raiders, and farmers in common with all those uh, all those bands, tribes underneath the nation. And so I think when we think about our neighbors, for us, the Apache to the West, our, our Navajo or Diné relatives, you know, there are silver workers. They make mm-hmm. beautiful jewelry. Um, and we have Hopi relatives and Pueblo relatives like the Islop Pueblos who make beautiful baskets um, and pottery. And we do as well, but that wasn't our main focus. And I think once colonization happened, like a little over 120 years ago, um, that's really when we started to change over from our, you know, our pre-contact culture to what we now live in, right? Our post-contact culture um, of just now, you know, I'm not out farming Right. And I'm not out doing traditional war tactics or guerrilla warfare, but those stories are still passed on and important to the cultural identity. And I still feel like some of that knowledge runs through my blood, even though it's not able to be used all the time. um, It's still very much alive in me and and my young ones. I see it in them Mm -hmm. as well. 
Um, I think we had a really good conversation a few days ago about uh, my partner is Yaki from the Snore Mountains of Mexico and how, you know, some Apache folks call the Yaki's the Apaches of Mexico. And, you know, standing around with three Yaki's, they're laughing at me saying, oh, no, you know, you guys are real tough. You know, you guys are warriors. We're just farmers, you know, Mm -hmm. and kind of having the cultural distinction between us, I think, is really cool. Um, But something that we still remember. Right. Because that is a part of our our identity. So just um, and, and, you know, when you go farther east, you know, I don't know about all of our relatives to the east. Um, are all of our relatives to the far west, but you know, the Kosalik folks, you know, those are our fishermen. I couldn't tell you a bit about fishing because we're from the desert. Famously, <laughs> yeah, not great for fishing, <laughs> not no, Padre, not fishermen. Um, but you know, each tribe has our own set of values, has our own purpose, our own religion, our own creation story. There's even a variation in the creation stories between us Apache folks. So, Mm. you know, everyone's very distinct and everyone is, um, everyone has a bit of the truth and everyone's creation story is right for them. Yeah. And that's, that's a part, a a big part of the teachings I was given when I was little. So Mm. I just really respect folks. Um, when they they have their creation stories and they have a piece of their cultural identity still alive in them, there's been a lot done to eradicate those stories and those memories from us. So keep going. Right. That's part of the the process of colonization and genocide, which we're gonna we're gonna talk about here in a second. Um as 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 people, you know, so growing up, we had uh US history and Indiana history. And again, I have a disclaimer. Indiana education, um, which not known to be top notch. Uh, low in terms bar, of, low bar. Right, right. Not the highest of bar in terms of education, especially when it comes to uh, objectively true history. Okay, <laughs> not not known for that. So we learned about uh, Native Americans in school, sure, but I had no idea that there were over you know five hundred uh, recognized tribes. I knew of like maybe ten, uh, right? Especially some of the, in the Midwest. Um, and and as I've gotten older, I don't know even a lot of uh, Native folks, but I've heard and observed that language, as it has with many other uh, people of color, has started to shift in terms of how people want to be identified. And so, you know, growing up, uh, Native folks were referred to as Indians, for instance. Um, can, can you talk about, um, not, I don't even care what the politically correct term is, but in terms of the diversity of language, if someone is in relationship with someone who identifies as, as Indigenous, Generally, how, how do folks want to be identified or how do you personally want to be identified and, and spoken about? I would say, you know, it's best to ask, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but usually folks want to be identified with their tribe and with their nation or with their clan. Um, and outside of that, you know, indigenous has become extremely popularized. Uh, I think it's a great term. Sometimes it doesn't encompass all the people I feel it should, right? Because mm-hmm. I think we don't often use indigenous for when we're talking about the continent of Africa, but that should be a word that we use more often. Um, But I, I, I really like Indian, like an N, a D Mm -hmm. and an N. Um, Mm -hmm. And when I was a little kid, I remember um, I asked my dad, who is my native parent, um, dad, you know, why do they call us Indian? You know, and I really had this fascination for the country of India, 
Sure. I was like, why do they call us Indian? You know, we're not like them. We don't wear bright colors. And he's like, you know, we call ourselves Indian to always remind, you know, the white man that came here how stupid he was. He didn't even know what we are <laughs> and calling us that. He's like, we'll always call ourselves that just to remind them how wrong they were. And so I remember as a little kid, like trying to like conceptualize that. Right. Because, of course, I didn't know the history of Columbus coming, not knowing where he was, seeing brown people with black hair and being like, oh, I'm in India. Yeah. You know, I yeah. did, I had no yeah. idea of that as like a five or six year old. But as time evolved, right. And as I kind of got more immersed in like an urban Indian community, which thankfully, you know, my family really, they pushed that forward. You know, we were urban, mm-hmm. absolutely in Denver, Colorado, you know, Arapaho land, Cheyenne, traditional lands, downtown Denver, inner city, but we were still going to powwow. You know, we were still going to the Urban Indian Center. And so my family really pushed that forward. And so as I got older, I kept doing those kind of things. You know, it was like, okay, I'm moving to Kansas City. Okay, where's where's the Indian Center? Okay, yeah. I'm, I'm moving to Portland. Okay, where's the Indian Center? You know, and that was just like, okay, that's where I'm going, right? And that's where I go to have my monthly potlucks. That's where I go to find community. Or just go to here where the best powwow is. You know, either way, <laughs> either way I'm going. Still important. Yeah. I'm still going. Okay. Um, <laughs> but in pushing that narrative forward, kind of as I got more immersed, I want to say like in my 20s, I was like, mm-hmm. urban Indian, that is actually more, that is a, a real view of my upbringing and who I am. And so when I say that, or when I tell folks that, especially folks from res and folks who have their Indian residency or have their status card, right? which is folks who are recognized as Native American by the federal government, where we are the last ethnicity and race next to dogs and horses Mm, that have to have racial status through the government based on blood quantum to be recognized as Native. And from my family's teachings, right? I have my blood quantum down to the eighth. A lot of Native Mm. people have it down to the 16th. You know, it's it's very intense and it's very um, it's it's very much a colonial concept meant to continue the genocide so that folks don't have yeah. access to land. You know, mm. when we talk about the erasure and the genocide against indigenous people, it always comes back to land. Yeah. Um, and if if we are rid of if they've gotten fully rid of us, then they can continue on their plan of neocolonialization or of you know, colonizing every inch, every inch of land and space that, that is this, this place we all live on Turtle Island. Sure. And, and for those that, that aren't as familiar with the term, can you explain what blood quantum is speaking to? Right. So blood quantum is something that colonialists used, right? Like our Columbuses, our, our conquistadors, Mm-hmm. And what they wanted to do was they wanted to create racial hierarchies. Okay. So one of the main things was the rule of thigh and trigger warning. <clears throat> Colonialism is very triggering, but this, this includes sexual assault, um, <clears throat> especially the conquistadors throughout Mexico and the Southern United States would say the rule of thigh is that in raping an indigenous woman or a brown woman, you bring her status because her child will become lighter. Right. And so that's kind of like that narrative of blood quantum in my mind is, okay. the more European we whittle, whittle down the bloodline, the better 
the offspring will be. So it's really like a deeply white supremacist narrative, right? And it's hard because we have, you know, and I don't think this is any secret, but I think it's good to be upfront that in, you know, multi-tribal indigenous communities here in Turtle Island, we still have some blood quantum problems, you know, of course. we've got folks who, you know, my, m- some of my family that are mixed with African-American and native, and there's a problem there. There's anti-blackness happening. There's questioning yep. happening of their status and their indigenous identity. I've got family members that are mixed with even like white, white, you know, like redheads and and light, light hair and their status isn't being as questioned as much. So we still have some of those colonial mindsets that came in from blood quantum even some folks like you know i'm a full blood you know Mm. like Mm. and i I do think it speaks to something right something that's in internalized inside of us right but it also speaks to we're surviving this genocide and a lot of effects come out of that and i i say that as someone with two bloodlines who survived genocides (laughs) But yeah. I just yeah. like see it. Yeah. You know. And this idea of blood quantum and the internalized oppression that you're speaking to is um, consistent among any population that has had to deal with European colonization, right? Yeah. Uh, it, it shows up as colorism in, uh, in, in India, Pakistan. It shows up as colorism in black and African-American communities. Um a, a, a hierarchy based upon how light or dark you are. It shows up similarly in, in Brazil, Central and South America. And so the, the the whiteness as the standard was kind of perpetuated pretty much through the entire globe, right? They missed a couple spots here and there, but they got pretty far. And that hatred, that categorization has been internalized by many of us. And then we perpetuate that uh, as hatred, violence, or judgment against ourselves and our, our brothers and sisters and our kin, and just continue to further the psychological damage and harm. So it's, it's one of the, um, the many awful links that I see in the, the story of colonization and the story of oppression and survival that uh, Native and Indigenous folks have endured and other oppressed communities across, throughout the world have had to endure as well. Even down to hair texture, facial features. I mean, it's so deeply laced with, with the, you know, white supremacist poison, poisonous idea. And, and it still affects, you know, beauty standards today. When you think about who you see as the actresses and models on TV and, and you can look, this is true in the U S this is true in central and South America. This is true in Bollywood. It's by and large lighter skinned folks. Cause that is still seen to be closer to whiteness and the normalized beauty standard. Darker skinned folks have a harder time breaking through and breaking in. We're seeing that shift a little, but it's still by and large the, the norm. Even this last powwow season, I had, you know, my young ones out there and I had, you know, an abuela grandma come to me and say, you know, just get a little hairspray. Mm. I'll get a little hairspray on there because they have naturally curly hair. And in the back right here where some of us have our, you know, pretty straight hair, you can just bobby pin it or hairspray it and it lays flat. But their curls are not meant to do that. You know, (laughs) they pop out here and they pop out here and, and that you know, grandma was pushing forward that colonial, that colonial understanding of, you know, we don't want to see the curls. We want the hair to look flat and straight. We want the braids to look flat and straight um, because that's perceived to be more beautiful. 
right? It's like native peoples, we come in in Turtle Island alone, we come in every shade that you could think of. And when we say black indigenous people of color, there's that eye there for indigenous because not all native people are people of color. Some native people are white, Mm. right? And white passing, and they still Mm. are absolutely indigenous. Yeah. Okay. And there are some indigenous people that are black, and yeah. that are still absolutely indigenous. And and in the the idea of the look of indigenous or the idea of the look of Latina. It's a exactly. myth, y'all. Like, <laughs> let it go. Right. It's not real. It is not real. Yeah. Um, often perpetuated by the white gaze, right? Or by fetishism or exotification. So it's like, right. let that go. Future. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. No, it's the future now. <laughs> oh man. So so let's let's jump in. Let's talk about colonization and genocide. Um again, thinking back to history as it was taught to me in K through twelve, you know, we learned about the smallpox blankets, we learned um You know that best, was dirty and trifling. Uh one of many trifling things Just that dirty. have happened. Yeah. 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 So, so, well, so, so, so we learned about smallpox. We learned right. about the Trail of Tears. Got it. And we're like, okay, yeah, our ancestors might have killed a few people <laughs> along Maybe the way. Maybe something happens. I don't right. know. <laughs> uh, Andrew Jackson was not a great president. No. But that's that's where the story stops, right? Right. Um, and so, so most of us don't grow up with an idea that a indigenous native folks are still here, still among us. You know, we we think about it. College applications. Oh, I'm a eighth Cherokee. I get a scholarship, right. but that is as far as we have an awareness of it. Right. So, I really want us to talk about the ways in which the genocide is still happening. Absolutely. Um, a re- recent story that came up was these the mass graves that have been showing up at these uh, schools, private schools, boarding schools, Catholic schools. Mm-hmm. Um, that you know, non-native folks are like, oh my god, how could this have happened? Native folks like, are like, we told you, we have been telling you, um, this not only happened, it's still happening, y'all. So I say all that to say, we don't know anything. <laughs> Help us understand how the genocide is still occurring. <clears throat> okay, so I, I just want to speak to something you said in the beginning, which is, you know, we're always framed in the past, right? Yeah. We're always framed as the chiefs, you know, the fo- the football mascot. We're always framed like pre-contact but yeah. we're not framed modern which like mm. we literally are still here so it's like, <laughs> not, like a little rude um it's a little messed up <laughs> y'all keep pulling those pictures from two three hundred years ago i'm like can we like okay we update this update your stereotype y'all <laughs> can we <laughs> Could you just imagine, like, all you ever see is pictures of, like, black folks from 200 years ago. You're like, I'm a little off-put. Yeah. <laughs> but seriously, seriously, though, when I think, and, you know, it's, it's, it's hard for me to conceptualize sometimes because my dad is just this, like, rustic urban Indian motorcycle riding uh, bandana wearing, you know, former American Indian movement type guy. So I have this really like, you know, just chingon, like understanding mm. of like native people in my mind. Cause it was my dad. Yeah. Right. And so sometimes it's hard for me to like conceptualize not knowing. Does that make sense? 
you know what I mean? Like, it's hard for me to be like, we don't exist, but I know that that is some people's reality, especially far out East, right? Mm. Like far out East. And I, and, you know, I lived in DC. um, I've lived near Detroit. You know, it really is a lot less um, represented native peoples. Yeah. You know, and, and there are native people there. But when I'm in the Southwest, I'm like, there we are. There we are. There we are. And and maybe I'm seeing it because I know, mm. or maybe I'm seeing it because there's more representation. Mm. But I do feel that as you cross over Turtle Island. So folks are coming from New Jersey, coming from the far East Coast or even the Midwest, and they're like, Actually, I'm a little bit off by the Midwest because everything's named after native tribes. I don't know if y'all just thought like some of those were like, no, those are like native words and native tribes. Um, But the genocide did start with the smallpox blankets. You know, it did start with the teepee creepers or the folks that were mass murdering people in their Mm -hmm. sleep. Um, It did start with the kidnapping, right? Yeah. And that's such a colonial, such a colonial understanding um, that you go someplace you've never been and then you steal people from there and bring them back with you. (laughs) This is not something we were like doing, (laughs) even as warriors, even as raiders, you know, or of like some of the most intense warriors of the Southwest, like. I'm not reading about how we, you know, went over to what is now called Puerto Rico and, mm-hmm. and took some people and came back like that. Yeah. that was, okay. Not a common practice, not a common practice, but definitely a colonial practice and a start of the genocide. Right. When we're, when we're reading through Columbus's diaries, which, mm. you know, have, ha- have something with you, whatever your religion, have that with you while you yeah. read Columbus's diaries. Cause that's like reading mind comp is rough, <laughs> no, you know, real. it really is yeah. rough. Um, but like one of his practices and his men's practices was to catch the, the ha- most hairless woman, small woman they could find. So pretty much a pubescent, you know, teenager, like 10, 11 years old mm. and kidnap her. That was like, okay, we're here guys. Let's eat, let's kidnap, let's go. Um, mm. And so like thinking back, like that's something that's still going on right now. Missing and murdered indigenous women. And yeah. and peoples, yeah. you know, it's not just our women anymore. It's elders, it's children. And this is just through kidnapping, sex, sex, sex slave trade and cartel. You know, yeah. this isn't even talking about like stealing children to go to the boarding schools or the Child Indian Welfare Act, which, you know, we had so many children stolen by the government. They had to make us our own welfare act. Yeah. They're like, y'all are right. Too many native children are literally disappearing. You y'all right. are gonna have to have your own law. Right. That you keep your own kids. And right now, a huge oil company is trying to overturn that law in Texas. To of course. Protect, right. Because they want land. And yeah. so if they get native children out of their homes, especially native children that are on reservation, um, that is gonna make it so the next descendant to caretake for the land or to be on our traditional land isn't gonna be there. Yeah. So, like, I totally see the game, right? I see it mapped out for me, but then it's stopping these multi-million dollar companies or just getting people even aware of it to really push it forward. Yep. You know what I mean? Yep. To understand. Um, being dirty, you know, I, colonialists and Europeans, you know, you don't have a good history of being cleanly. And, mm. and this comes from soap. 
You know, Mm. soap was one of the biggest trades that we did with Europeans when they arrived here because they were still using methods of ash, which I don't know if you know about, but it is where you burn something like, you know, like almost like a wood and it creates ash and then clothes, garments and blankets were washed in ash. That's why we had a really big problem during the Spanish flu. That's why we had a really big problem during the Black Plague in London. Um, It it was because of those cleanliness practices, Mm -hmm. right? Thankfully, in my Jewish culture and also in my native culture, cleaning is very important. Yeah. It's almost like a, a religiously affiliated sacred um, way to be. And so in mm-hmm. how you wash your hair and how you wash your blankets and how you do things is important, right? Yeah. Um, and so when I think back to the smallpox blankets, like was that was that intentional or was that yes. an intellectual misnomer or both? You know, because if you're washing, (laughs) I'm serious, because if you're washing infectious things with ashes, that's not going to get them clean. We even skin wash or or sun wash things, which means, you know, we wash them like very sacredly. And then we put them out in the sun for two days so that they bleach, Mm -hmm. bleach in the sun Mm -hmm. to get to like the next level of cleanliness. So I'm kind of like, I'm really upset that some people didn't know that they should have known better. Yeah. But also, you know, buffaloes, you know, our main food source went extinct um, based on literally, you know, colonizing the West. Yep. Our practices of hunting, gathering and farming were made illegal, um, which I think is something that people don't talk about enough. But I think I shared with you and I try to always share with with my native audiences that I'm deeply blessed to have my great auntie Chubby, which is my grandmother's sister, still alive. She's between 94 and 96. We don't know how old she is because she doesn't have a birth certificate, but she remembers when the Jehovah's Witnesses came onto our land. They are our colonizers and gave us rations, right? And our rations, Mm. she said she had never seen anything pure white and our rations were flour, powdered milk and sugar. And she just said, that's when they're going to kill us with our food. And this is after the Apache Wars. This is after, you know, our people were imprisoned in Florida. This is after a long, a long time of war. Right. And so you say, okay, how you get food, how you make food, that's illegal now. This is what you eat. Right. And now we have like a predisposition to diabetes. Well, is that colonial or is that based on the colonial foods that we were brought and forced to eat? Right. So, right. Yeah. So I'm, I'm glad that you kind of enumerated those different ways. And I want folks to understand that when we talk about the genocide of indigenous folks, we're not just talking about uh, literal raiding of villages or literal attacking of people that that still happens. But there are a lot of different ways that indigenous populations are um, oppressed, marginalized, and I mean, even like destroyed be it through the food, through environmental pollution, through continued taking of land that was promised via treaty, like that should be legally binding, but the U.S. just pretends it isn't. And through this continued practice of of um, missing and, and murdered indigenous people. Like, I mean, this has been going on in Canada for a long time. It's been going on in the U.S. for a long time. It's happening in Mexico. Indigenous women are disappearing at alarming rates, and it does not get the media coverage, the news coverage uh, of other people groups disappearing and other people groups being murdered and targeted. Um, there have been serial killers that have specifically kind of targeted these groups of people, and the police have, you know, not taken it that seriously. Whereas if it had been when it's white women being killed, the police are on that uh, mess. So 
I almost slipped there. I had to censor myself. <laughs> I'm surprised uh, I haven't pressed yet. I'm actually very impressed with myself. You're doing great. <laughs> <laughs> so I want people to understand that this is a very real ongoing attack um, on, on thousands of people, different people, groups, different tribes, different clans. And it is still happening today and not getting nearly enough coverage and attention. Um, and it's just, it's, it's tragic. Terribly it tragic. It is. Um, yeah, trigger warning. Native women listening out there because you you already know. Uh, I grabbed my corn so I could talk about this because, you know, mm. it, it is. You know, it's deeply triggering. I come from a, you know, my great-grandma who is from southern, what is now called New Mexico, was taken three times. Okay. Mm. And each time she was taken, she was taken by banditos or northern Mexican mestizos. You know, and our first colonizer was Mexico. It's hard, I know, for most non-Native people to conceptualize. Um, but Mexico was colonized for 400 years. My, my people have been under colonial power for a little over 100 years. And yeah. so when we think about and talk about, um, you know, the genocide, like it's very fresh in my blood. Um, and some folks can't remember, you know, like I talked to some some of my Southern Native cousins and they don't know their tribe. Like, they're like, mm -hmm. yeah, I'm native from like here. And like, I'm like, oh, what's that called? Like what, you know, and they're like, I don't know. I don't yeah. know because it's been a lot longer for them. And I try to have like empathy and conceptualize with that. But sometimes it's hard for me to comprehend. Um, when we talk about folks on the East Coast, you know, our relatives, our native relatives on that far East Coast that were touched first by colonialism. It's been a long time you know? Um, and so sometimes it's hard to conceptualize the genocide and its duration. Right. Um, but I will say, let me, let me just take a pause here so I can collect all my, my vision. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. People being taken is a colonial practice and it was a conquistador practice. Okay. And it is a macho, it is a masculine practice. This isn't something we have documentation of women going in and kidnapping women. Okay, this is this is a, a male-dominated crime, um, and so when we think about all the native peoples, we've all been terrorized by male violence, right here on this continent and in this land, and the land is terrorized by male violence through. The oil industry and and we see that the land is conquered and raped and not taken care of um and you can see that anytime an oil line is built the amount of pollution and just desecration of the land that takes place is is just it's not even like i can't even speak to it because it's just devastating yeah. it's devastating um and that's something that's really frustrating that in European cultures, you know, a lot of European cultures are colonized themselves um, and have been for many years to the point of non-remembering of their their nations and of their clans and their tribes and traditions. Um, so I see that in them as well, like that sickness there. Um, <clears throat> but even there, you know, we're not having the conversations that I've ever heard of the land underneath you produces your health mm. you know and it's almost like it's like common sense 
Yeah. In native culture that like when I go outside and I lay down on the ground or I go outside and my dog eats the grass or I go outside and I'm sitting there eating my apples from my tree that that this land produces for me. Am I thinking, oh, I wish this was filled with tar or like, mm-hmm. I hope there's like, uh, like unsewered waste underneath this or like, yeah. <laughs> you know, like a chemical spill, you know, yeah. like those are not the thoughts that enter in my mind. My mind are thinking things like, okay, like you know, this is a blessing and like, you know, there's no chemicals or poison on this land that I've put on this land I'm caretaking for. And that's a blessing, you know, Mm -hmm. now I get to eat this apple. Like what a, you know, what a joy, what a blessing, what a privilege to be able to eat fresh things that come from the land I caretake for. That's a privilege and a blessing. And so I don't know if that got skipped in some cultures or not or forgotten Mm -hmm. knowledge, but when we have dumps of nuclear waste underneath us like in colorado right federally recognized and like totally like it on arapaho cheyenne land when we have oil companies trying to buy chacos new mexico you know one of our oldest um ruins in new mexico right where we found like dinosaur bones like come on people like this is significant ten thousand and longer you know longer for most than most white folks can conceptualize when we're talking about history right ten thousand years we want to dig up for oil you know (laughs) it's like we have an addiction we have an addiction to capital um you know as a western culture there is an obsession and addiction to more And so that lesson was taught to me very young. And it was taught to me that to be in a good way is to not have too much of everything, to not gain too much of all the things, but to have things in moderation. Yeah. Um, And that is something I don't often hear um, from my Jewish family, but something that is just like, you know, knocking on that wood all the time from my native relations. Yeah. greed and access is, you know, taken away from your spirit and who you are. And so I think um, that culture, though, has been perpetuated through Western society. And that's why we have the continued genocide and erasure of Native people and why we go missing and why so many of our strongest leaders are women in matriarchies and they go missing. They're targeted by violence. People want to kill them. And it's mainly big industry. You know, and I think that's harder for people to conceptualize that a lot of these huge corporations are mafioso, you know, you know, when you buy out the lobbyists and you buy out the government systems that are supposed to regulate you and do this kind of stuff. It's very, it's like a cartel. It's like, you know, we've, (laughs) we got a bunch of like very low key, like indigenous folks living on remote land, trying to fight multi-billion dollar companies. There's a story I saw recently, I think it was in Minnesota, in which um, there's, I don't know if it's an oil or, or but it's a natural kind of uh, gas for resource company. And they have the county sheriff combating indigenous protesters that are pr- protesting the work that they're doing because it's harming the land. The city and the county said, hey, we shouldn't have to pay for this. And so the company is reimbursing and paying for the public police officers and sheriffs to basically brutalize the indigenous protesters whose land it actually is anyway. It, I mean, does it blow you your mind? This. It's, like, I'm it, like, it's, am I in a bad villain movie? <laughs> no, for real. <laughs> we are. We are, by the way. Yes. We are. It's not yeah. good for us. <laughs> no, it's not. It's not. 
<laughs> so there's a there's a laughing through a the way pain. in which it's what'd you say? I said laughing through the pain. You have to. You, you have, have to. to. But yeah. I, I don't think non-native folks um, like myself understand the degree to which um, there's a concerted effort and an interconnection between industry, uh, government, and then some of these other rogue agents. Like, you know, we have these conspiracy theories about the Illuminati, or we get on to individual politicians for not doing enough. But man, the leeway we've given private organizations and companies um, and, and capitalism. I mean, you're right. They literally they are. are. <laughs> and, and they've literally right. been yeah. the cause of assassinations, imprisonments. Uh, yeah. They have killed uh, people, organizers, and activists across the globe, yeah. not just here yeah. in the U.S. Yeah. Uh, it's just tragic. And again, it's something that doesn't get enough attention and awareness, but it is absolutely part and perpetuating this genocide that we're talking about. Just speaking on modern missing, in, in, missing indigenous and Indian women um, and girls. You know, these oil companies come in with man camps, right? And mm-hmm. just imagine like, and I know you're in Indiana, so you can imagine rural, but imagine even more rural than that. You know, mm-hmm. imagine each, like sometimes when I'm in New Mexico, I see signs that say 90 miles to the next gas station. You know? And I think to myself, like, that is off-putting, you know, right. but, you know, off-putting and like, this is rural, rural. So you've yeah. got a long distance till you get to the next place. Indiana, you know, maybe got 20 minutes, maybe got 20 miles. Sure. But just, you know, a long distance between where people were allowed to settle, right, mm-hmm. on the land. And so when we talk about that, we talk about man camps, you think, okay, you're about to put, you know, 60 to 120 men. I've never once in my life met a female oil driller. Never. Mm-hmm. Because the work environment is really probably deeply sexist on machismo, I would assume. Yeah. But yeah. most of these camps are, you know, a good amount of men. Most of them don't have background checks. And when we talk about like oil industry, construction industry, you know, these are not industries that are doing like, oh, yeah, you know, do you have any do you have any charges against you in terms of like violence towards women, violence towards children? No, these these background checks are not happening. People are being hired, uh, getting paid under the table, and they're living in these remote settings for six months to two years or longer. <laughs> you know, that large amount. And so when we look at the numbers of like women sexually assaulted, women missing, you know, domestic violence, we're seeing my experience, which is indigenous women being hurt, brutalized by white men. And we're Mm -hmm. this only group, like we're this only statistic that has this huge amount of predominantly white men attacking us and taking us as opposed to the rest of of women, right? Women who identify as black, women who identify as Asian, having a more multicultural background of attackers. Yeah. And so, you know, when the man camps come in, the violence goes up. Yeah. Right. And that's something that's not really being looked at or really Mm. being taken into account, you know, uh, in our South, for our South natives, we have the cartels, you know, taking not right. just taking one or two or three people, taking a clan, going to somebody's house mm-hmm. and everybody's got to go and everybody's wow. about to farm, you know. And that's some of the disparities that we have between us and what is now the United States and mm-hmm. what we have in folks that are in Mexico. Mm-hmm. You know, and those are, conver- <laughs> you know, those are fights I've had. Can you believe like we have it harder than you because they take our whole clan? Well, we have it harder than you because just one's missing and we don't know. And we're we're literally fighting over whose colonial process is more painful. Right. <laughs> right. 
<laughs> like this is literally the dumbest fight y'all could have right now. <laughs> y'all should just quit, both of you. <laughs> like, no, I seriously had it worse. Seriously. Right. <laughs> you, you both lost. Let's move on. <laughs> literally, you both got punched in the face with a golf shoe. Yeah. Okay. Right. Don't, you know, but the, but I'm laughing because that is literally like it, we're in conflict about that through nationalism. Right. We're in conflict with folks from the islands, you know, who are indigenous because we're from the mainland. Yeah. You know, (laughs) like these things have just like happened over time. You're like, this doesn't make sense. Right. But it, it, it feels better to fight about something that you're never going to win or an argument that doesn't matter than to take a deeper look at what's going on. Right. So it's a distraction method. Yep. Right. And so you'll get into debates or conversations with indigenous folks that just want to fight about blood quantum, Mm -hmm. (sighs) who just want to fight about adoption outside of Indian country, you know, and it's like, these are not the debates we need to have. The debates we need to have are how are we going to get the land back? How are we going to be able to self-govern? None of the treaties, none of the treaties have been held to be accountable. Right. Every treaty is a lie. So it's like, okay, so if there are no treaties, how are we going to be able to govern ourselves? Yep. Right. When the colonial government decides every piece of land and property, when, when they are in cahoots or, you know, having some type of relationship behind the doors of these business arrangements like land grabs, where the federal government says, all this land is federally protected. Nobody can buy it. And then they have a private auction. That's yeah. only told to a hundred people. Right. And, and it's two days in two days. Yep. You're like, make it make sense. Make it make you're sense. Like, you all really just made $8 billion because <laughs> you did a 48 hour land grab. Like, right. I see you being shady. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not stupid. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I know how this works. <laughs> And so, so as we bring this convo to a close, you know, we've, we've reflected on, um, the diversity among indigenous population, the history of colonialism, colonialism and genocide. Um, but I want to bring us back to the question that we started this episode with, you know, what would it take for us to keep our native and indigenous familia safe? Um, and so I'm going to throw out a, a couple of things that I think our listeners can do both small and big picture. And then I'll invite you, Keebler, to add whatever you think uh, you want to add to, to answer this question. And specifically thinking about and answering this for um, the audience, which is predominantly non-native, right? These are largely uh, white folks, Anabaptists. What what can we do to kind of do our part to, to keep um, native folks safe? And I think the first thing I would say is just diversify uh, the people you're following, your news sources, so that you are more aware of these stories as they're happening. Um, you know, there are places like Mennonite Mission Network, uh, people that are working there that have access to these stories and access to these communities. And so just make sure that you are tapping into those news outlets, uh, the connections that you have in your communities and your faith tradition, so that you hear more of them, so that the stories can be told. And as the stories are told, you'll find something that tugs in your heart and you might be able to use the resources you have, the connections you have to try to help uh, a community a clan, a tribe, fight whatever it is that they're fighting. So first of all, we just have to hear more of the stories. Part of the reason this conversation is important because uh, oppressors really want to rewrite history and to make sure the stories aren't told. But if the stories are told and the truth is told, then people can be mobilized to make a, a difference and an impact. So I think that's one simple thing that we can do, begin to just kind of be in places to hear more of these stories. Second, I would I would encourage us to really pay more attention 
to um, some of these longstanding environmental fights. Um, I, there have been several high-profile fights over pipelines, especially in the in the U.S. within the last five to ten years, um, and. They might make the news cycle for a little bit. Some of the police brutality makes the news cycle for a little bit, but then it dies down and you just have a small group of folks left fighting for their land, their lives, and their future. When we've got abundant resources, we could help. Right? We could be doing more. We can be supporting them more, applying uh, political pressure or offering financial support. So just kind of being aware of those fights that are still happening, the people that are still trying to keep pipelines from happening, fracking from happening, and destroying their communities. So those are the two things that come to my mind that we can do Offer it to help ensure that we're we're creating a safer place so that our indigenous and native familia can can thrive. What what would you add to that, Keepler? I would add following or looking into the Apache Stronghold, the Apache Language Project 2020, um, looking into on-res artists, skateboarders, fashion makers jewelry makers and supporting communities, um, you know, supporting indigenous communities directly. Um, I would say follow and financially support, especially for our non-native relatives that have the capital, our water protectors, land defenders, uh, folks that are forefront in the MMIW movement, the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women or MMIWG, Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls. I would say follow performers. You know, we've got some amazing Apache performers, actors. We've got some amazing, amazing indigenous performers and actors. Res Dogs, you know, just came to TV. You know, like we have these new things that are indigenously led, indigenously written. And those are the things that need to be uh, bought into. Those are the things that need to be watched uh, and prioritized uh, to give back to indigenous folks. Um, what was the first one that you had mentioned? Just diversifying that, our, yeah, our media sources so that we're hearing more of these stories. Okay. Yeah. I would say definitely looking into, you know, when you go to these tags, looking into the individual people that are tagged under these mm -hmm. posts as land and water defenders. Sometimes they'll have campaigns. Um, they'll ask for fiscal benefits or spiritual uh, practices uh, that they'd like to happen for them and just supporting those, those things. Yeah. Excellent list. And we'll make sure that we get all these in the show notes for this episode. Um, we, we're doing the live stream now, obviously. This will also be a, a audio only podcast episode that'll go out. So we'll get all these in the show notes. We'll also put uh, links to s several other indigenous people that I follow that I think y'all should support as well as a link to Keebler's business. By the way, can you tell folks a little bit about Decolonize and Thrive? Let them know what kind of services that you offer. Sure. So in Decolonize and Thrive, um, after Black Lives Matter blew up this year, I was in my house for the pandemic uh, doing caretaking for one of my young ones that has a pre-existing condition. And I just had to change my activism. Like before I was on the streets protester, you know, I was going in, I was lobbying, I was doing actions, hunger strikes. And then all of a sudden it's like, okay, now I'm a stay at home mom. And there's also a global pandemic. And yeah. so I just kind of sat myself down and I was like, how can I still be a part of the things that are in alignment with my morals? Um, how can I still put food on the table, meaning money? Um, and how can I do it and be like in a good way, be a good partner, be a good mother, be a good matriarchy to my aunties and my siblings? Um, and to my parents as a caretaker, how do I do this? And so I was like, okay, I'm going to start a business. I, and, and you know me, I'm not very tech savvy. I'm not very, like, <laughs> sure. I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I'm not on that. 
as much as right. I should be, right? But I was like, <laughs> I'm going to make my own website. I was like, I'm going to record my own workshops. And I was like, I'm going to cater them to what folks need. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I do now. I'm a consultant. I give workshops. Um, I help do strategic planning for businesses, nonprofits, collectives. And I give rates, uh, you know, based on folks' identity, you know, and I have a sliding rate. And I think that's a part of our decolonial process. I don't, um, you know, I prioritize folks. I prioritize Indigenous folks. I prioritize Black folks. I prioritize our femme relatives, our trans relatives, our two-spirit relatives, yeah. our gender non-binary relatives. And that's really for my nieces and nephews. They're like way cooler than me. Like I'm just an auntie and they're like, auntie, like, I know you're getting old. I'm like, you know, I'm just a queer. And they're like, that's so like... <laughs> 2000 like one of them told me i was born in like the late 1900s i was like you really you really go from 1990 oh my (laughs) clutch my pearls (laughs) right not the late 1900s so but they're they're like always getting me hip they're always getting me there you know we're having talks about what it means to be a light native to be a white passing native you know what does it mean to be how we appear you know and kind of have it like you know i had (laughs) i had my teenage niece or nephew you know put help me help me describe how i appear to my audience that was visually impaired Mm. you know and so i was like okay so like i'm conceptualizing these things that were never cool in the late 19th century (laughs) 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 and that now you know in 2021 22 are like absolutely necessary yeah which by the way is our is is this video caption uh it should be we should be yeah we should be yeah so so yeah, so for folks and organizations that uh, are interested in learning more about anti-racism, decolonization, you can check out Decolonize and Thrive. We'll also put that link in the show notes. Uh, and and you think about hiring Whitney, on, uh, hiring Kibler on for contract work, <laughs> old habits. <laughs> old habits die hard. I know. Uh, so yeah. Yes, I appreciate uh, well, that plug. Yeah. Of course, of course. Um, Thank you so much, fam, for being on today. Uh, we you. appreciate you. Appreciate the wisdom and the knowledge and the leadership that you bring. It's it's invaluable, and I hope that you understand that and that you know that. Thank you, fam. I appreciate you. Thank you for having me. Thanks, folks, for listening, and thank you to my families for raising me and this wonderful land that I'm on that's taking really good care of me. So, yeah. all right, y'all. Until next time, this has been What Would It Take. Thank you for listening to the What Would It Take podcast. To view the source material for this episode, check out the show notes. If you'd like to find more great content from Anabaptist World, visit anabaptistworld.org. And if you want to learn more about me, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter as Benjamin J. Tapper. Mm-hmm.